It is a family disease. Drew Wilson is striving to help families and individuals find the path to recovery. If he's not at Steps Recovery, you might find him at Alcoholics Anonymous or a junior high school helping teachers scare kids straight, or rather letting them know there are resources available in their times of need. Regardless of where he is, he's practicing his integrity or fostering connections in programs like Sober Softball. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Nider. I'm a husband, father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. We are so excited today to have Drew Wilson. Drew is from Steps Recovery. He's been there for quite a few years and um, makes a big difference in the industry. I know Steps has got a pretty big footprint in the substance abuse and mental health recovery industry and in our neck of the woods anyway. Um, And so Drew, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I know we've been sitting here chit-chatting a little bit about some of the different things that you've been doing, but uh, my question to you is, you've been with Steps for several years now. Is that what you dreamt about doing when you were young? Definitely not, you know, uh, before, before I got into addiction, you know, cause I, I didn't drink or do drugs all through high school, anything like that. You know, I grew up in a religious home and, and so I didn't start using until my mid twenties when I got prescribed by a, a doctor, you know, after a health thing and, um, you know, soon discovered that it solved not only the, the physical pain, but some of the other stuff that was going on in my life as well. Uh, so I had zero knowledge of this world of, of addiction, addiction recovery, I, I knew what I'd seen on TV and movies, just like my, most of the population, you know, and uh, and so that never crossed my mind, ever, you know. And, and I was a guy that grew up thinking that I didn't really have any talents, you know, because I, I thought of talent in the traditional sense of good at sports, good at music, you know, um, can sew really well, you know. Um, <laughs> and, you know, later in life I found out, you know, uh, you know, my mom, I remember, would tell me talent goes beyond things that you can do physically, you know, it's, uh, the, the ability to, to have empathy for someone naturally, uh, the ability to, uh, connect with people, you know, is, it's a talent. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that and accept that and, and use that to my advantage. Um, and it turns out, you know, this industry is perfect for it. Um, that I do have that ability to empathize and, and have compassion for someone and, and connect with them and, um, and, and help them find hope, you know. That seems um, like, um, that's an interesting thing to call a talent. You don't usually hear people, maybe you don't hear people say, you know, I've got this talent, I can empathize with people. But yeah. but I think it is, it's, I mean, I think you can learn to do it, but I think when, when it comes naturally and easily, it is, it is a talent and a real powerful one at that. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people, you know, there, there's people that find it really hard to do, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, Sometimes it does take practice, 
you know. Whereas my brother-in-law, naturally good at sports, doesn't take much practice, you know. Where other things that I'm I'm good at, he might have to practice at. Hmm. I like that too because we all come, you know, individually and with a little bit different twist and shape and size, and and to be able to identify that just because we're different from, you know, the next guy on the street, we still bring something to the table that's really incredible. Yeah. I like that, that your mom brought that up. Uh, yeah, she's a, she's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and so you got into substance use prescription drugs for just pain. Mm-hmm. And where'd that take you after that? So uh, I, I'm the kind of uh, the addict that it escalates pretty quickly. You know, I um, we've all probably heard the parallel of Jekyll and Hyde, you know, where... Uh, and, and that's really what it was for me. Um, I, I can I can look back on my life and see those behaviors, the addict behaviors, long before I put a substance in my body. Um, uh, but, you know, and, and I was always a pretty good kid. I, I, I was a, a liar and a manipulator from a pretty early age. Uh, but, but overall, I was a pretty good kid, you know. And, um, and, and it took that identity away from me completely. You know, I went from uh, just getting prescriptions from a doctor, um, you know, quickly to doctor shopping, finding way, more ways to support my habit. Um, and before I knew it, I was, I was committing burglaries. You know, I, I was a naive, uh, you know, LDS kid from California and had no idea where to find a drug dealer, you know? So, uh, my only thought or my only way of supporting my habit was first stealing painkillers from houses I was already invited into, you know, friends and family, finding an excuse to go to the bathroom, go through the medicine cabinet, whatever, uh, and then pretty quickly graduated to homes I was not invited into, you know, uh, which we also call burglary. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and you know, you know the science behind it and the, the prefrontal cortex shutting off and the midbrain kicking in. And and, uh, and when I first heard that, you know, first saw uh, Pleasure Unwoven, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like, that's totally what happened to me, you know, and it's it's something that's it doesn't make it excusable, but it's explainable, you know. Well, you um, talk like everybody knows this, and and I think if you're in the industry, maybe maybe most of the people in the industry know, but I still think there's a a huge, I think there's still we've made a lot of progress, but I think there's this gap between really understanding this is an illness. Yeah. Darn nabbit, this is yeah. an illness. <laughs> this is not a choice. At the point where the addiction is taken over, right? Because that prefrontal cortex has shut down. Mm-hmm. It's not thinking. That's that executive part of your brain. It just stops making those executive decisions and the drug becomes more important than your relationships, more important than eating and having a place to live. And you just don't care about anything but the drug. Yeah. And, and you know, it's hard because when I explain that to people, I don't want it to feel like I'm giving this person an out, like they don't have to take accountability and, and, and you know, own up to their issues. And that's why I say it's, ex- it's, it's explainable, but not excusable. You know, um, there, there is this level of, you know, it's an illness, uh, some level of choice was taken away from them, you know, but, uh, but, you know, I still gotta, I still gotta deal with, it's my, it's my decision to deal with it and, and, uh, face it and overcome it and make amends, you know, and make things right. Yeah, which which is important. That accountability piece is important. You may need some help, right? You may need some help to to stop using, 
but then you do you get more choices back as you do yeah. that healing process. Yeah. Which yeah, absolutely. But it's my favorite. One of my the favorite parts of my job is talking with the families, especially ones that are new to this, you know, and and offering them this information and helping them understand and uh, and giving them some hope, you know, that their their child or their brother or sister or whatever is is still in there, you know. Uh, we just got to do some healing, and that stuff will start coming back. You know, you'll start seeing the light come on, and uh, and that's the best part, right? Is getting a person in the door. Two weeks later, you see them again, and and you know their countenance is back, and the lights back on, and, mm. and so it's it's exciting stuff. But that phrase you use is also kind of a good source for that hope, right? Of like if you're in the shame cycle, right? If you're a burglar, right? Mm-hmm. So now you're 25 years old, you're breaking into houses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Looking back on what did my mom and dad teach me? Where did I learn this? None of this is something that you were taught. Right. This is all something you're going to internalize that now turns into I'm a bad person. I'm not redeemable. I can't get out of this type thing. And when you start to learn, there's an explanation for this. Mm -hmm. Right. This isn't because I'm an evil person. Right. I have a problem. And... Guess what? There's millions and millions and millions of other people who have this exact same problem. So it doesn't give you the excuse, like you said, but it does help you be able to say, okay, there's a way out, yeah. right? Like there's, there's a path and, and this is a human thing, right? This isn't part of a unbroken thing. This is the human experience and helps you to be able to understand that. I think that part's... Yeah, and that uh, that's good for the parents to hear too, because I know my parents had this sense of failure. What did we do wrong? You know, and... and you know, maybe, you know, they took a look at some stuff and, uh, of course, you know, we, we picked it apart and there were some things that, that maybe led to the, the way I think and the way I perceive things, but, but ultimately they were good parents, you know, um, they didn't do anything wrong. Um, I, they, they beat themselves up for a long time, you know, we raised this kid that became a heroin addict and a criminal and, but, but what I tell them now is you also raised uh, a young man that uh, was able to overcome all that stuff, you know, that had that strength. So you said once you started to get addicted, then you realized these are this was something that you had seen in the past, even though there was no substance. Yeah, yeah. Once what, I started, what were the getting, ways that you had seen that? Um, you know, once I started getting that education um, and and realized that it wasn't really a drug and alcohol problem. It was a me problem. You know, uh, I started looking at that stuff. Like I, uh, I, I became a liar at a pretty young age and, and for a few reasons, um, that I can, that I can pinpoint. Um, I was kind of teased, you know, seventh, eighth grade. I, I grew really fast. By the time I was in eighth grade, I was like six feet, six one, you know, and, and when you grow that fast, all of a sudden you have all this extra mass you become a little uncoordinated. You don't know how to operate your body all of a sudden. And so like, um, you know, it didn't translate to great athleticism, you know? Um, and that was something that I felt was important to my dad. That's what I perceived was that he had a son that was good at sports, you know, and, and my friends were good at sports and, and I got teased, you know, and, and, and developed these negative self beliefs about myself, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm stupid. I'm bad at sports. Um, and, and so, I started uh, lying, right, to make myself look better, sound better, be cooler than I actually was, you know, because I, I, I couldn't stand the thought of, uh, of not being welcome into that cool crowd that I was in at, at that age, you know, and so I started making things up about myself. Two, you know, um, 
you know, again, not to put place any blame on my parents, but um, at that age, I, I thought when I told the truth to my parents, I felt like I got the same kind of punishment as if, as if they just caught me lying. So my, my thought was, well, I might as well lie and have a chance at getting away with it, you know, uh, so it's danged if you do, danged if you don't, you know. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I became a pretty masterful liar, you know, and, and a chameleon mm. at a young age and, and, and little things throughout, uh, those teenage years. I remember stealing a $50 bill from my, my friend's, uh, house when his parents were out of town and left money for them, you know, and, um, uh, just little things like that, you know, little behaviors, um, that, that popped up that I can look back and be like, oh yeah, it's been there a while. Mm. Well, and you said you didn't have any talents. Those are some pretty sweet talents, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Just got to hone them in the right way. And if you hone them in the right <laughs> way. But it's interesting to me that I, I see, you know, I work with people that are recovering from addiction or mental health or whatever. And, and I, I'm always blown away at just how, um, how high-functioning, how incredibly talented they really are. Right. Most of the time, they're probably some of the highest functioning people out there, mm-hmm. and and it's like, it's like they have to have this as kind of a, you know, a handicap keep them from overrunning the rest of us, yeah. right? Because <laughs> they're incredible people, but I don't think they can see it, just like you talked about. It's it's remarkable um, in my experience with you know we haven't got to this yet, but with going to jail and prison super talented people in there, you know, they come up with these amazing ways to sneak drugs in or get away with things and, or they're really great artists. And I'm like, these are super talented, smart people. Like, yeah, if only they, they could uh, use it for good. Yeah. So, well, and, and they then do, right? Look at, look what you're doing. Yeah, it, it is possible yeah. for sure. And I, I've seen a lot of success stories. Well, you talk, you've talked about families and being able to give them hope and help them understand the dynamics of addiction and, and how that's, you know, how you can help their loved one, you know, get recovery. But so often there are families out there that this is new to them. They don't really know they you know, they weren't taught how to handle these kinds of problems. What's there to help people, help families, help people prepare uh, or be more knowledgeable about mental illness and addiction? So uh, there's plenty of resources. The, the trick is willingness, you know, um, and, and uh, the, the motivation to, to seek it out. You know, obviously there's Al-Anon. We all know about Al-Anon where you can go. It's, you know, uh, family members, loved ones of alcoholics. It's a support group like AA. Uh, and there's, there's groups everywhere, you know, where they can get together. There's plenty of books uh, to read uh, about setting boundaries, you know, helping your loved ones get through this. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of treatment centers have family support groups, family night where they, they, uh, they welcome them and have them as part of the group. And, and I think it's, it really comes down to, uh, it's a family disease. You know, it's it, a lot of the times affects the family as much, if not more, you know, I know I probably took several years off my parents' lives, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and so it all just comes down to, um, uh, where's the willingness and where's, uh, uh, their willingness to, to check and see if they have any accountability, if there's anything they could do or could have done or, or could change, you know, to help their loved one. Are they enabling them? Are they, um, you know, are they kind of a hindrance in, in their recovery? Um, and it, it's hard to do, you know, it's, it, my, my parents bailed me out of jail 
the first two times, you know, before they realized, wait, we got to leave them there. You know, um, they wanted to protect me so much from experiencing uh, difficult emotions and difficult times uh, that they didn't realize um, they were just kind of compounding it, you know, and it, it's, as long as I had that safety net, you know, as long as I always had a way out, there was no motivation for me to recover, you know. Uh, so it's when people first started setting boundaries and telling me no, and that's when I started getting better. Mm. Well, and again, I'll come back to, you said, you know, there's Al-Anon and there's, you know, a stuff and there's all of this stuff. But I think I was probably well into my 30s before I knew Al-Anon even existed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew there was AA, but I really had no clue what that looked like, Right. Um, and so I suspect there's still a lot of people out there that don't realize there's some really great resources that they can take advantage of for free and be preemptive to whatever's going to come into their life. Because I don't know of anyone that escapes um, being touched in one way or another by substance abuse and mental illness. Right. And so I think what you said, the willingness or the, the ability to go, I, you know, I don't know what I don't know. Let's go see if I can learn something. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's the key. Is um, are, are you willing to recognize that that maybe you need to do some work as well? So, hmm. so being in prison, you know, you you met a lot of people in prison. It sounded like, mm-hmm. what was that experience like for you, and how did that change things? So uh, prison uh, was interesting. I. Um, I did three and a half years in state prison uh, down in Gunnison. Uh, my in, my first seven and a half months was actually in the Utah County Jail. While I was awaiting sentencing and fighting charges and all that, you know. And um, and, and then, so I, I was still like using drugs even in there. You know, uh, people find ways to get things in. Uh, I, I my first seven months when I was in the county jail, I would use some stuff when I could get it. And then my first few months in prison I was using, you know, so even after that, you know, even after all that getting pulled away from my daughter, my life and the rest of my family, my freedom, it wasn't enough for whatever reason. I was still just trying to, um, to self-medicate and, and, and not feel, you know, and, um, and, and, and then I had an experience in there where it wasn't anything like crazy drastic, you know, other than I just, uh, you know, broke some rules in there, got some uh, sanctions put on me, some consequences, and for whatever reason, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, where just the, the switch flipped and I'd had enough, and uh, and I decided to get to work, you know. Um, one, the sanctions that I got put on, I was, in a, I was in a program called the HOPE program in Gunnison, and I was a, I was a senior mentor in the program, uh, where you know you get paid like forty two cents an hour, you know I think it's like eighty six bucks a month, which is kind of big bucks in prison. It's <laughs> balling, um, uh, but uh, you know I got in trouble within that program, and and you know they took that position away from me, and then they put me on something called RRG, stood for Remedial Reform Group, and um, it's for sixty days. I had to get up at 5.30 in the morning and cleaned for three hours a day within the section. I had to do five pages of journaling. They took away my TV, my CD player, my visits, my yard time, phone calls, uh, commissary. You know, all that got taken away from me. Um, and I'm a huge San Francisco Giants fan, and they were in the World Series at that time. So my TV getting taken away, 
yeah, that was, <laughs> that was rough. And that was enough, you know, I was like, all right, I'm missing the Giants. I got to change. You know, I'm just teasing. That wasn't like the whole reason, but, um, uh, but something clicked at that moment. Uh, and, um, and I decided to start taking advantage of some of the resources that I had, uh, during that 60 day period, I, uh, I didn't have access to any classes, but I did have access to books, you know, and, and that's <clears throat> when I picked up some books, some good books, that's my, my mindset started changing. I, I read Man's Search for Meaning, mm-hmm. um, which changed my life. You know, here's this guy that's in a concentration camp in World War II, and he's choosing to have a positive attitude and choosing to make it count for something if he did survive it, you know, and he's getting beaten every day and starved and his family's, you know, God knows where. And, um, and he's choosing his attitude. And I was like, well, if he can do that there, I can do that here. You know? So I had two and a half years left and, and I started adopting that attitude. Like, okay, I can choose my attitude every day. They can take all this stuff from me, but I can choose to be happy, you know? And, and I started recognizing, um, ways that I could change my behavior. Uh, I, it clicked all of a sudden that behavioral changes, um, and learning new behaviors is just like learning anything else, uh, whether it's the piano or golf or whatever, you know, um, when you, when you learn to play the piano, right, you start out with something small, like Mary had a little lamb and, uh, and you practice every day and you try newer songs, harder songs, and you get better and better and better. Um, and no matter how much you practice, you still suck sometimes, right? And, and so what I realized is it's the same thing for gaining integrity. You know, I was out on the yard one day and I had a candy wrapper and I was going to throw it on the ground. And then I had the thought, you know, and the definition we've all heard of integrity. Um, if I was with other people, would I do this? And the answer was no. So why am I going to do it when I'm by myself? Um, and so I realized at that moment, like, this is a moment for me to practice and start with something small. You know, and then, and then I looked for other moments, you know, I lied to my mom on the phone. Okay. It's too late. Can't take it back. But I called her and and told her the truth, you know, and started practicing these little moments. My cellmate said I could have a piece of his candy. So I actually took one and not two, even though I want to, you know? Um, and so I started practicing these little moments and was getting better and better and better. Um, and like I said, some days I still sucked at it. Some days I still do, you know, um, even, even with years of sobriety, I, I don't have perfect honesty and integrity, and that's okay. I just keep practicing and do better the next day. Um, so anyway, a funny thing started happening. I started kind of like myself, you know, for the first time in my life. I started feeling confident about who I was, and I loved this little self-love, and, and had some of the happiest days of my life up until that point, even though I was in prison, you know, because I, I loved who I was, you know. And prison is not a popular place to get better. And what I mean by that is, uh, it's like craps in a barrel, right? Um, they, they want to drag you down. You know, they don't like people, um, getting better because then they have to look inward, you know, um, and they start feeling bad about themselves. So I, you know, I was made fun of Drew, you're doing too much. You're taking too many classes. Like I'm not in the section playing cards and working out, you know, I'm taking classes, I'm reading books, uh, you know, um, and doing whatever I could to better myself for, for two and a half years, you know, and, and it wasn't fun, you know, it was, it was a difficult thing to do. And that's why I kind of take offense, maybe not offense isn't the right word, but, um, 
when people try and say time within the prison doesn't count towards your towards your sobriety time. Um, but that was where my best work was done. That was where my hardest work was done. Um, and, uh, and it's not easy. It's not easy to change behavior in prison because uh, very few people there uh, want to support that. You don't have anybody to model those right. behaviors, right? Nobody's there to say, come on, Drew, we'll do it together. You're on right. your own. Yeah, and there was a few people. I found some like-minded people, and, and, and several of those guys are still part of my life today and are doing well. You know, and, you know, and not to boast or, or to say, you know, I told you so type of attitude, but most of those guys are not most, but a lot of those guys that made fun of me, I've since gotten to treatment, you know, and whether it's steps or somewhere else, you know, and they reach out to me on Facebook or wherever, you know, it's uh, pretty awesome. Yeah. And it's okay. You know, it's okay that they weren't in the same spot as I was, you know, everyone has their, their path and their moment where the switch flips, you know, and, and, and I have no judgment. Does that, does that kind of um, interaction, you know, you said that you got picked on and bullied a little bit in school and here you are in the prison system getting picked on and bullied a little bit in the prison system. Was there a difference in those two scenarios? Were you able to manage it better because of where your headspace was? I was able to manage it better. There was definitely moments where maybe I regressed a little bit. Um, because of those past experiences and, you know, my, I guess, trauma response, you could call it, would kick in. Um, and, and I'd want to be cool again, you know. But for the most part, you know, because I loved who I was all of a sudden, I was able to manage it better. I was confident in who I was, you know, and, and, and their opinion didn't matter to me as much. Well, I wonder how many other, you know, other people that are, end up in the same kind of place that you are and end up regressing because of their environment. They just, they can't quite hold on long enough to overcome the environment. I mean, that'd be really hard. Yeah. And that's, that's why it's so important to, you know, whether you're in prison or you're in treatment or you're fresh out of treatment or wherever you are, uh, to surround yourself with like-minded people. You know, um, I always tell clients that come in, uh, to steps, uh, you know, it's perfectly natural and okay to be friends with the people that you're in treatment with. However, find also a few people when you get out that have some time, you know, that have been sober for multiple years, that have success, um, because you're going to become like the people that you spend most of your time with, right? Um, you know, and, and that's what I did when I got out is, you know, I was, I was very prepared, but I also surrounded myself with other people that had proven success. When you, like, I imagine that you've told some people that, like, you've got to surround yourself with like-minded people, and you just see deer in the headlight? Like, what are you talking about, right? Uh, a lot of the time, you know, maybe. Um, a lot of the time I'll also get like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, you know, where, you know, they're just kind of, it's lip service, you know? Uh -huh. um, but, you know, some people will listen and, and do it, you know. Uh, it just depends on where everyone's at individually. Yeah. I went to treatment seven times, you know, before I would started listening to the stuff that I'd heard. Well, and I think of these kids in, in middle school or junior high or whatever, and, you know, and like for my own kids, I would say, look, you can find better friends. And they just look at me like, Mom, I can't find better friends. What are you talking about? And I wonder yeah. if it's the same thing, right? They, they don't know that they can go out and choose who they spend time with. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I think it's probably just natural to spend time with uh, whoever it, it just feels easiest to be around, you know, uh, you know, especially with, you know, romantic relationships, mm. chasing that, you know, and when you get out of treatment or whatever, um, and, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to go up to someone at a meeting or wherever you are and, you know, ask them if you can hang out with them, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's not easy, but, um, you know, who said treatment was, who said recovery was, you know, uh, but never, like I, you said, it's, these are people you're still hanging out with, and so those relationships, when you can reach out and find somebody like that, it, it changes everything. Yeah, it does. Um, and I've, you know, I say this a lot. I've, I've never met anyone with uh, long-term recovery that got there by doing what they want to do. You know, um, a lot of it, a lot of it is, uh, you know, you've heard the here's your uh, here's your comfort zone. You know, it, they can't see what I'm doing on the podcast on the by listening, but, and then way out here is where the magic happens, you know, uh-huh. you got to get out of your comfort zone if, if you want chance of success. Well, and so often when I, when I read clinical documentation of people who are in recovery, right, I'm reading their stories, and so often they started using when they were in junior high or mm-hmm. high school, and it was the people they were hanging out with because it was easy, mm-hmm. right? Those are the people who accepted them and said, yeah, be part of our group, here's what we're doing, and, and away they went. So many stories seem like that. Yeah, I think that's that's a common tale. Um, you know, I, I started later in life. I I, I think that's more rare. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people start young, and there's it's so hard at that age. You know, I I was speaking to eighth graders the other day at a you know I, I spoke at a middle school, and, um, and and I just wonder like are they are they hearing anything I'm saying? Are they gonna? Because I don't know that I would have at that age. You know, like like what does this guy know? You know, because it, it's hard. You it's peer pressure. You want to. You want your friends to like you. You want people to like you, and and you'll you'll do whatever it takes. A lot of the time, you know. So when they introduce you in front of a a, a middle school or junior high, what do they introduce you as? I mean, obviously as Drew, but right. what what context do they give? Well, I mean, when I do that kind of thing, that the kids know what's coming up, you know, and and you know, just recently when I went, the teacher just said, Hey, this is Drew. He's here to talk to you about addiction. You know, we've been talking about a little, a little bit about addiction in class and, and he's here to talk to you about his experiences. And, and I'll usually start with, Hey, do I look like someone that was a former heroin addict and ex con, you know? Uh, and usually they'll say no, you know, and that's kind of the point of, uh, of my conversation with them is, um, it can happen to anybody. It doesn't discriminate. You know, I came from an upper middle class family in California, uh, you know, raised in the, the LDS church and, and I became a homeless heroin addict and a, and an ex con, you know? Uh, and, and that's the message I want to get across is like, uh, this doesn't just happen to a certain population. I've seen lawyers, doctors, mm-hmm. nurses, people in LDS bishoprics, you know, oh, yeah. it's, it knows no bounds. Moms and everybody, right? Nobody is, you know, can escape that addictive pattern once they once they get into it. Yeah, most of the celebrities. Most of the celebrities. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't even imagine uh, being in that lifestyle with uh, with addiction. You know, just that the the celebrities that do recover have immense respect for because it would be that much harder with that much money and that much limelight and pressure. So what's that message when you're at those schools? What do you, you're obviously it can happen to anybody, but 
what are the tools? What, what, what do you teach a junior high kid student to, to protect themselves? So they, the teacher tells me before I go in, be as raw and honest as possible. You know, the only just, you know, don't swear excessively, but, uh, but tell them like the nitty gritty, they don't really want us to talk much about the recovery part and like how great we're doing now. It's, it, they want it to be more of like a scared straight type thing, you know? Um, so, you know, I'll talk with kids that age. I'll talk with them a lot about how much, um, how much their words mean, you know, and how much, um, you know, we've, the four agreements, you know, being impeccable with your word, you know, you never know how your words are affecting people, um, you know, and how much, uh, that can mold someone for the rest of their life, you know, and, and to, to be kind and, um, you know, to be, um, compassionate and empathetic and understanding and, uh, and really difficult at that age, you know, um, you know, I'll, I'll talk with them about, um, just the the dangers of addiction in the in the context of you know can sneak up on you it doesn't always come from a place of your friend having some marijuana or some alcohol that they offer you at a party you know it it can be a doctor it can be you know uh, something that you don't expect you know and um and you know and, and i'll try and encourage them to talk about or not you know talk with someone that they trust about feelings, you know, as far as depression or suicidal thoughts or, you know, things that are going on in their life and, and just communicating, uh, you know, and, um, that particular teacher, uh, you know, seems really good with that kind of stuff. He's got some students that stop by and talk with them and, and open up to them. And, uh, he mentioned that, you know, of all their guest speakers that they have throughout the year, that the, the recovering addicts that he has come in is always the most popular and most effective, you know, uh, the last time I did it, not this earlier this week, but, uh, I did it back in November. Also, this, a girl came up to me afterwards and talked about how her dad's an alcoholic and she sometimes struggles with suicidal thoughts, you know, and, and it was hard because I wanted so bad to just like give this girl my phone number and help her, you know, but that was not appropriate. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll text the teacher every now and again to say, Hey, how's this girl doing? You know? And, um, and it's, but it, that was encouraging to me that, that mm -hmm. she felt comfortable to bring it up and talk with someone about it. How do you get someone like that help? Here's a minor who's asking for help, but she's a minor. How do you get them? Like, what's the course of getting someone like that help? That's a tough one that I don't know that I have a uh, great answer to. You know, I, I think, again, um, help has to come you know, from the family, you know, and then being willing to recognize a problem and, and to get this young lady help. You know, I think the school counselors and, you know, <clears throat> clergy, whoever can only do so much, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, but just, just be an ear, you know, just, uh, someone that she can talk to, you know, I think community, and that's what I told this young lady is like the communication is huge, you know, communication and, and just saying it is so powerful, you know, and, uh, and I encouraged her to just continue to find people to talk to that she trusts that will help her. Um, and, um, and, and that's going to serve her pretty well. Um, you know, but unless, you know, the parents or whoever is her guardian is, is willing to, to put in that effort, um, it's it's really difficult, 
you know, it's... Yeah, well, it is. And I mean, even with her suicidal, unless, you know, even then the parents have to be willing to get her help. Right, right. Um, but, you know, especially ones that are sick themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's probably hard to do because then they have to recognize their own problem, you know, and address their own problem. And that's, that's a daunting task for a lot of people. But it's incredible that she was willing, you know, in a place where she could come up and even verbalize that and talk about it because the secrets, right, the family dynamic is so often we don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that she could, like you said, to be able to verbalize that and, and speak those needs and speak her concerns, I mean, that's... That's half the battle in getting help. Yeah, yeah. Just my, my hope for her is that you know some of her classmates and peers, you know, are are kind to her and have some empathy. And it's hard to put yourself in that spot mm-hmm. uh, as an eighth grader to to have the ability to put yourself in someone's shoes and find empathy and and, and really have compassion for that individual. I, I remember what that's like. Um, so it's it's a difficult place to be. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm such a huge advocate for them teaching stuff like that early on in school. You know, this is, these are the symptoms of depression. These are the symptoms of anxiety, this, that, you know, and, uh, and, and just talk about it. Make it less of a stigma. Make, just have it be just open forum, you know, and, um, and, and make it less taboo. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a safe place where they can talk about it and, and a place where they can... And it's hard, especially in junior high, because they're so they can be so cruel to each other. Mm-hmm. But if you expose yourself, you may end up being a target for you know the rest of the year or however long. Yeah. And so it becomes really difficult as a I'm sure as a teacher to try and provide a safe place where they're not going to get backlash from that. Yeah, I, I just wish that I could help them understand that that time in their life, uh, at least who thought they were cool and who didn't. It's just not going to matter. You know, you can't tell. Yeah, I know. I know. I I really wish that that everyone could understand that. You know, it's just a blip. You know, you're you're an adult way longer than you're a kid. You know, and and it doesn't change when you're an adult. Yeah, like we still try to be cool in different ways. Yeah, it just changes to your car, your house, or your job, or whatever. Right? Yeah. Well, it comes back to what Drew said. You gotta you've got to figure out how to love yourself and I. I don't know that I've ever taken a class that teaches you the importance of checking in and making sure that you have integrity, mm-hmm. you know, that you are totally honest in all that you do and all of the things that you learned in recovery, they don't teach that in school. I know. You know, really, they don't bring that up. I really wish, I've always said this, that I really wish everyone on earth could go to rehab, mm-hmm. you know, because you learn so much about how to deal with your emotions in life and, you know, and check in with yourself and... I think it could be beneficial for for everyone. Well, and there's connection there, right? I yeah. mean, this is a the one of the huggiest industries I've ever ever seen in my life, right? Everybody hugs and everybody is checking in with you. How you doing, Drew? What's going on in your yeah. life today? And and no, no, tell me really, Drew. Tell me what's going on in your life, right? <laughs> and and then they're teaching things, and they're they really are there to support. And so it's an environment that not everybody gets to live in. Yeah, and, and that was that was, took me a long time to get used to, and even to this day, you know, like I've never been a big hugger. Um, my family, even though we we absolutely love each other, we weren't I love you people, you know, and and so now I I hear it every day, hey, love you, man, love mm-hmm. you, Drew. Here's a hug, you know. I'm just like, <laughs> and it's still like, like okay, I'm working on it. Yeah, you know. 
Well, and it's uncomfortable. I, I'm same with you. I don't come from a really touchy-feely family, but boy, there's no question as to whether we love each other. Yeah. Like, don't hug me. Yeah. Don't hug me, right? <laughs> I think there's different ways to show love. You know, yes. like my dad showed me. He never once said it, you know, but but he showed me by showing up. Yeah. He was always there. He's at every game. You know, just he showed up, and I never doubted that he loved me. Yeah. So. Which is which is important for kids to know, right? Again, it goes yeah. back to those kids. Is nobody's teaching them how to be okay with who they are. And find meaning and purpose in the life that they have. Yeah. So integrity is a pillar for you, obviously. What are the What are the other things that you know? What are the other tools for you that are daily? Connections huge. Um, you know, I I stay pretty involved. I still attend AA. You know, I attend uh, the sober softball. You know, when it's going, I I, I try and stay connected with with other people in recovery. Um, you know, honestly, what's what's been kind of important for me is um, is to have both kind of friends. You know, um, it's you know, and some people need you know, some people have like only recovery friends, and, and that's okay. But but for me, it's been important to have uh, kind of both sides. You know, um, and because I work in recovery, you know, uh, a really difficult thing. Uh, or something I always tell people that are, are getting into working in recovery is uh, that are in recovery. I think the cardinal rule is uh, don't let your job become your program, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, because I've done that before. Before I went to prison, I worked at Steps once before as a tech down in Payson, and, and I let that job become my program. And so when I messed up and lost my job, I lost my program and I relapsed, mm -hmm. you know. So um, so I, I try to separate, you know, I definitely get some of my recovery from my job and it does help me, but I have to have a separate program as well. And, you know, uh, friend recovery friends outside of work, you know, my meeting that I go to, uh, you know, and, and just do my own thing. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's difficult, uh, when your job is recovery and then you have your recovery outside of, uh, work you know and then it's just like that's your whole life you know like you live and breathe uh recovery talk 24 7 you know and so it's important for me to have other things outside of that you know uh, well and it is so because that's, yeah it's a lot of recovery yeah and and there's life outside of recovery right like there's there's a moving on to the next level of of not just being in recovery but and, and but living you know, just yeah. wholehearted living. Yeah. Yeah, not kind of, I guess, using it as another safety net, you mm -hmm. know. But, you know, and, and some people, some people need that kind of structure, you know, maybe the, the first little while where they're at meetings every day, you know. Uh, but I think people just kind of find their stride in recovery and what works for them and what doesn't. So. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do outside of recovery that's that's different, your, your other part? Uh, you know, I just have friends that aren't part of that world, you know, that, that I'll hang out with. And, you know, I, I have some friends that, that drink alcohol, you know, and they they know that I it's not something I want to be a part of and and they don't do it in front of me, you know, and I just don't engage in that activity, you know. Um, and, you know, my nobody in my family is part of that world, you know, and I spend a lot of time with my family and, um, you know, and I have a... Uh, a fiance that actually she is in recovery, but but even we work our separate programs. You know, we 
we don't go to meetings together. We, you know, she does addict to athlete. I do AA, um, and, and we keep those things separate um, because that's another kind of dangerous pitfall. I think that uh, you know people get trapped in as they they find someone in the rooms of AA or whatever, and 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 their program is one and the same, you know, and then the relationship doesn't work out and their program falls apart. Well, I can't think of how many times somebody's been in recovery and has ended up getting in a relationship and taking them right back out again. Mm -hmm. For one reason or the other, maybe the relationship they're using in the relationship or one of them starts using or or because it doesn't work out and then they go back to, you know, that mm -hmm. that escape that they that worked before. Yeah. Yeah, uh that's that's the hardest uh thing for us to get through clients heads you know is the relationship thing and, and you know thank goodness I think the only way I was going to get through a year of not having a relationship is to be removed from it completely which I was in, in prison there's no no females there you know so so that was the only way I was going to get uh, an extended period of time just working on myself without a distraction of a romantic relationship you know um, and, and I didn't even dive into one immediately after being released you know I'm, I mean I've been out of prison five years and you know, just barely, you know, last year got into a serious relationship. But it sounds like that's, um, that was not easy to stay out of a relationship. Um, it, it wasn't, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I dated, you know, I, I, you know, saw girls here and there, you know, and, um, it's, um, it, it wasn't easy. You know, there's, I'm not, I'm not cured. You know, I still, uh, I still get depressed. I still have anxiety. I still have uh, the tendency to make impulse decisions, you know, and, and, and want a quick fix of, you know, a romantic relationship that's going to make me feel better, mm -hmm. you know. And, and there's been a lot of trial and error. I've made a lot of mistakes, you know, over the last five years since I've been out. Um, you know, I've, I've compromised my integrity, you know. And, uh, and uh, but, you know, the difference is uh, now I have, tools to be able to bounce back and, um, and, and course correct and, and just continue working, you know, like with, with the piano, you know, I just keep practicing and, mm -hmm. and don't give up. That's incredible. And I love to hear how you've put safeties in place, both for you and your fiance of how are you guys going to continue in your program and then be able to come together as a couple, but your recovery is still most, maybe not the most important, but it's vital. You have to do that piece too. Yeah. Yeah, and so we, we've both been pretty good with those boundaries of, you know, making sure we keep things separate and, um, you know, and, and also do things sometimes together that are recovery-based. But, uh, but the, our core program, you know, and our meetings and stuff, we, we do separately. Mm -hmm. So, Drew, what's, what's in the future for you? What do you see yourself doing in five or ten years from now? You know, uh who knows, uh, you know, I, I've already, you know, kind of exceeded the expectations I had for myself, you know, and, and I'll say that to brag, like, I'm just as surprised as anybody. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I'm the, I've been at Steps for four and a half years or so, and I'm the director of business development. And, um, and up until probably a year ago, I was still pretty immature, you know, like, I, I think I could have moved up in Steps a lot faster. But I was, I was always just kind of like, uh, you know, I was good at my job, but I was just kind of a goofball, you know, like joked a lot, you know, and, and I still do, but, um, and, and maybe wasn't 
taken as seriously as, as, as I could have been, you know, had I um, been funny and goofy in the appropriate places, uh, you know, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I've, the last year has, has been a big growing uh, time for me and, and I'm taken more seriously, you know, and I'm moving up in the company and, and now I, you know, I'm looking at some other things, you know, I, I, I always want to have my toe in the recovery industry on some level, whether or not I'll be in this industry, uh, till I retire. I don't know. You know, I've thought about, you know, my, my fiance is a real estate agent and thought about getting my license and doing some of that stuff together, you know, and maybe just on the side. And, um, you know, I, I own two homes, you know, um, which just blows my mind still. Um, it was just something that I never even considered that I would be able to do. I just always had that self doubt, like, no, no, you're not, you're not going to be a homeowner and have a, you know, a career and be this normal guy, you know? Um, and that was a big mind blowing experience for me and a big eye opener when I realized like I can do things, you know? Like uh, a lot of the times I don't even, um, I don't even consider the fact that I can do this, you know? Uh, and, and then, and then when I do, I realize that actually doing it was way more easier than I had envisioned in my head. Like buying a home was way easier than I thought it was going to be, <laughs> you know? Uh, paying you know, mortgage I, is not a lot harder than paying. No, yeah. Right. I mean, I decided <laughs> I wanted to buy a house. I, I talked with a friend in recovery who I, I was you know, asking him about how he bought a house and all this stuff. And, and he explained it to me and, and I explained my finances and stuff to him. And he's like, dude, you can do it now. I'm like, really? And a month later I had a house, wow. you know? Um, so, so I, I still, uh, I still do that. I have this self doubt or this, you know, uh, I, I can't do this or I can't do that, you know? And like learning an instrument. I, that's one thing I did in prison as I learned to play guitar and the ukulele, you know, and, and it was something I always kind of wanted to do. I wanted to have that talent, but I just never even tried because I figured I couldn't, you know. Um, so it's it's just a matter of like putting in a little effort and a little research and like, turns out I can do some stuff, you know. Mm, very um, cool. What's yeah. uh, what's on your bucket list that, uh, that you're hoping to accomplish? Well... I think we'll have some kids. Yeah. Uh, I have a 12 year old daughter, uh, who lives up in Boise, Idaho. And I see her a couple times a month. I go up there or once, once a month usually, but, um, and, and that's been just awesome. A lot of hard work to get that relationship back to where mm -hmm. I want it to be. And that's, that's something that's so important for people to understand is, is it takes a year to get a year of recovery. It takes five years to get five years. You can't get a year of recovery in 30 days, you know? Uh, and so often we get into recovery and we just want all our stuff back and we want our kids back. And uh, well, you hiked 50 miles into the woods, you got to hike 50 miles back out. Right. Uh, and, and it takes what it takes. And, and that's one thing that I was actually pretty good at is being patient, putting in the work, consistent action over time equals trust. You know, and, and I just put in the work slowly, I think, gained a little bit of my ex-wife's trust back, you know, to, you know, I don't think she'll ever completely trust me again, but, <laughs> but I think, you know, to the point where she's lining up a little bit, you know, we, we went to court, we worked some things out, you know, and my daughter's in my life now. And anyway, I got off topic. Um, but, but anyway. that's a big piece. Yeah. That's a big piece of the future for you though, right? Yeah. It's kids yeah. and family. And yeah. So, so I think, you know, uh, my, 
uh, my fiance is uh, in her thirties and, and she's always wanted kids and, and, you know, was in her addiction and she never had any. And, uh, so, you know, I'll be the, the dad at the high school graduation. That's like 60 years old, but big deal. You know, <laughs> but, um, this is Utah. That happens. For yeah. Kids. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So it's just no big deal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we'll do that. And, um, I think, you know, I always had this fear for a long time of my life being um, cookie cutter, if that makes sense. Like the guy that just has his house and he has his job and he has his kids and he, he goes to work and he goes to baseball practice for his kids, you know, and I had that fear for a little while and, and now it just sounds awesome. You know? <laughs> like now it's cool. Like we have our house, you know, we can, we can look to the future and, and buying our little toys, you know, whether it's a RV or, you know, just little things like that and traveling. I, I just love to travel, you know, I, and, and all of a sudden all these, all these possibilities are popping up of things that I can do. I've always wanted to go to Europe and, and now that that's a possibility, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that I could potentially do. Um, and, and so really, um, my goals and my future is, is, is just to have that, that normal life, you know, that I used to be scared of. Mm-hmm. work until I retire and, and, you know, and, and, and die feeling like I, uh, I made a difference and I accomplished something and, and that's okay. It's, it's okay to just have that. I yeah. don't, I don't have to be, um, you know, famous or, you know, um, have that validation of, you know, doing something that is, is viewed as great, you know, or, yeah. um, so yeah, that's, very cool. Hopefully what my future looks like is just boring. Well, I think that's boring. it's interesting, though, because a lot of people, you ask them about their bucket list, and they'll say, oh, I want to travel here, I want to do this, or I want to go skydiving, or whatever, and you want you want normal. Yeah. Right? Want, you want, want boring. normal, boring <laughs> life, because you've done some of the other stuff, and that wasn't I've had enough for excitement <laughs> for, for a lifetime, you know? And, oh. and, and hopefully I can just be part of helping people and and bringing awareness to addiction and breaking down the stigma as well as mental health. And, uh, yeah, that's, cool. that's good enough for me. Well, Drew, I suspect that, you know, people that are going to listen to this may want to get a hold of you. They might want to confide in you or they might realize that they need some help. How will they get a hold of you? What's the best way? Um, I mean, I'm in business development. I'm answering my phone all the time. Like they can call me, you know, like I, I'll, I, I don't, I, I don't care to, Give my phone number out, you know, I can do that, whatever. Yeah. Um, or, um, you know, contact Steps Recovery or, you know, however. They can go onto the website. Facebook. Yeah. Facebook, LinkedIn, yeah. however. Yeah, LinkedIn. All right. Yeah. Well, Drew Wilson, thanks for being with us today. Yeah. It's really just been a pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.